quit hiring resumes. Don't hire resumes. Hire people that have the potential to deliver value to your company in the long run. And so look at the character instead of the resume. The character will give you a prediction of future performance and future who are you and future do you fit with a culture. From seven CTOs, my name is Etienne De Bruyne and you're in the CTO studio. Welcome to the CTO studio. I'm incredibly excited to bring back to you a conversation I had with Casey Kleindienst, magnificent human soul who I am fortunate enough to call my mentor. We spoke quite a bit about how to find the best employees in technology today, but we also talked about the Plan, Do, Study, Act methodology for rapid cycle improvement and all around just unbelievable wisdom from Casey. So I hope you enjoy this episode and see you soon. Casey Kleindienst, welcome to the CTO studio. Etienne de Bruin, thank you for inviting me. My first question to you is what was your first impression of me? My first impression of you when I met you back in 2002 at Quidel was that they've just given me one of the most fantastic people I've ever met. And yeah. I wondered, what did he do to be assigned Relegate. to me without, without either of us deciding? Is that proof that the universe exists? That's what happened. Because it ended up being the most meaningful change of my life. Because they couldn't manage me. They knew that right away. They couldn't manage and me. And they couldn't manage That's you. That's what happened. They exactly. realized that let's put these two people who we can't manage together and right. see if they self-destruct. And then give them challenges that are almost insurmountable. And, and then see what we, happens. we just blew it out of the park. Yeah. Probably two of my best and worst experiences was culminated in our relationship. The best experience was that you were the best boss I ever had. That's a stretch. The best boss I ever had. Oh, my gosh. And the worst experience I had was when they tore me away from you. Well, that was change, right? I mean, that's just how all business ends up. It's constantly in change. So that was our change. We delivered everything that was expected of us, and we went on to the next thing. For you, that separation was difficult because you had such a free environment to work in under those two years that we worked together. Everybody was really set free to do what their portion of the project was, and then we were able to put it all together. And, and so when that ends, there's a familiarity and there's a safety, a feeling of security in that kind of environment that you know when you go to work the next day, you can count on those people and move the project forward. Now that comes to an end, and it's a bit like a separation. And so what we tried to do was have that big party at the end where we brought all the employees of the company together and then we had it catered. And, and then we remember we were handing out checks for the people that did a good job. I mean, we did everything. So that was the attempt to try to create a soft landing. But then it was time for me to go and you left shortly thereafter. So yes, I worked for you for two glorious years. And my first experience in having been a young software engineer, being sort of a rigid coding environment in South Africa, rigid coding mm -hmm. environment in Germany, coming over to the States, 
into what was more of an IT support role, which, as you know, drove me absolutely up the wall. Right, right. And then being given freedom to sort of reimagine our supply chain and how our business intelligence tools supported that under your leadership. So after that, you've done a few things, but then you moved into this very interesting space, which is shaping the next generation. I love how you're integrating the business world with the academia. When I got into education, I had retired from about 35 years of private industry practice. And I was invited to join Cal State Fullerton and basically teach the courses that I wound my career in. Once I understood the process of teaching, I stepped back a little way and I saw that our students were graduating and then they were just floundering after that. I didn't see where graduation led to any kind of professional next step. And I thought to myself, there's a big need in the working world for high-qualified, high-potential students, and they will be grabbed up. All we need to do is figure out how to put students in front of that want them, and I think we can make something happen. Because I was unhappy with the fact that there wasn't this natural progression. And it took nine years to figure out what to do about that. And my first step was to form a student club. And the student club did a number of things for me. Number one, it gave me a, a vehicle with which to talk to other students. So the student club wasn't formed with 20 people showing up one day. The student club was formed with a single individual. He came to me one afternoon. He said, I heard you talking about the need for a student club. I'd like to help you start that. I go, then we're going to start the student club. You're now the president. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we worked together. And with that, he, he went and recruited himself four or five core officers, and then they put together a calendar of events, and they started have, having meetings, and then they, they started contacting companies, and they developed these plant tours. And so they would take their student club members and then go off on these plant tours. And what's interesting about plant tours, it's one of the reliable means that interested hiring authorities look at students, and they can evaluate students just from that that informal two hours. And we were making matches through these plant tours. And all of a sudden the word got out and that this club was getting jobs and that more students started joining this club. You know, I saw the club take off, get a lot of traction. And from that led me into the next step. The, I recently spoke with someone from a large company who said that the interview process really consists of trying to accomplish two things in an interview. One, does this student or candidate fulfill the minimum requirements for that job? In other words, can they code? Do they have experience in this technology or that? Mm -hmm. But that the second thing is, will they succeed in our company culture? And I thought that was fascinating in this climate of one interview fits all or do the coding test or draw the thing on the whiteboard. I mean, that's, not necessarily a technical competency that's being tested, but really in our environment, do we think that you will succeed? I'm imagining that with the visits, that two hours, they get to know in that two hours whether it's a good fit because you're actually interacting on sort of a more of a relational level. You're getting to know someone. And how they behave in that informal process is how they behave generally in everything. And that's why that's a reliable way of determining qualification. But culture and potential 
are the probably the two most important variables that you want to take into consideration. I think knowledge is necessary to be able to do the fundamental task. You know, you got to earn your pay. But then we're not just hiring for that mechanical task. We're really hiring for what can this person do down the road because the company will grow and it can only grow if each individual grows along with it. Some of the more important things in determining those qualifications can be character-oriented rather than career-oriented. One of the things I say, I advise junior managers, even senior managers, is quit hiring resumes. Don't hire resumes. Hire people that have the potential to deliver value to your company in the long run. And so look at the character. Instead of the resume, the character will give you a prediction of future performance and future who are you and future do you fit with a culture. And that's such a hard thing for both the job applicant, in this case, technical job applicant, or in my case, you know, business job applicant. That's such a hard thing for them to grasp because somehow somebody told somebody a long time ago that the resume is a history of what you do and, and that's what you're selling. And I'm going, man, that's not it. That's not it. People see that, that'll be put on the C pile with the other, other 600 exactly. resumes. There has to be a revolution or some sea change in how this is done. Yeah. Honestly, I've hired many, many people and I, I almost never look at the resume. Good. Only because that team first, can I work with this person? Oh, by the way, oh, let's quickly have a look at the resume. Oh, yes, good. Because A, I'm assuming you won't be applying or seeking me out if you don't know that you can do the job. Mm -hmm. That in and of itself is a huge qualifier. That's right. And then if we're uh, vibing in a conversation, I'm going to tell very quickly whether you know what you're talking about. That's right. I guess the problem is you can't have 30, 40 conversations like that. Right. 70% of all jobs come through the hidden job market. That means that the really important jobs we probably don't post. We call people we know and say, hey, who do you know that fits this profile? When you work with your students, can you tell pretty quickly? Oh, who right was away. Five minutes. Wow. I'm telling you. What you said it happens everywhere. You know, first couple of interactions with a student is like they're showing me everything. I think there's something that I have a certain openness where I don't prejudge anybody about anything. I stay open long enough to really understand what I don't understand. That's the other person. If I were to look at it and make some snap judgments, I would lose that entire mm. ability to get to a deeper level to find out what are they really made out of. So ASAP, get into their shoes, get to a level of understanding about where they're coming from. Yeah, you got to understand them. When you have a feeling about someone, how do you know that it's not just your own personal bias? One of the things I want to get to quickly is what's their knowledge level? Well, what are they expected to know? I go, well, how about what they learned in college? That'd be a novel approach, right? So I couch questions that aren't necessarily technical. They're open-ended, but they can be answered with pronouns or they can be answered with precise terminology. So if they're answering with pronouns, they're just telling me they're disqualified themselves because I really don't want to go any further at that point because they haven't done the work necessary at the time they could have, which was when they were in the educational system. And I can find someone that did. I'm not looking at the best of the bottom of the pool. I'm looking at the best uh, of the top of the pool. And not being able to just talk about what you know is a fantastic giveaway. Giveaway. Yes. And they write the same way. You can tell if they know anything when they write when they just use pronouns. 
And that's a sad statement about college grads, you know, in 2018. And I think that's what you're seeing in code schools. Uh-huh. So what is your familiarity with code schools? Well, I avoided it at all possible cost. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I'm kidding. Yeah, no, 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 I'm kidding. The thing we're seeing at code schools is the same, almost the exact same thing you just described about college graduates, which is, so code schools is more of a crash course, really, I would say. Okay. Someone is a career changer. They do a three-month code school or something. They pay 10 to 15 grand Mm -hmm. for that. And now they want to find a job. Mm -hmm. And what I am realizing, and I know myself, when I'm learning a new language, a coding language, it takes me almost a year before I start thinking in that language. Like, oh, this will be a great problem to solve with this language. And I find that people who are graduating code schools, they feel like they're qualified for the job, but they actually can't have a conversation about it. Mm -hmm. And so what I want to teach them is I want to raise their confidence levels by getting them exposed to that sort of taxonomy or get them into colloquium so mm-hmm. that they can actually grow more and more comfortable to speak about what they know, mm-hmm. that mastery of their skill. Absolutely. So my son was in a Montessori school, mm-hmm. and I observed him one day, and one of the key methods of teaching at the Montessori school is they will have toys and puzzles in a, and they put all the kids on the carpet and then they will demonstrate one of those puzzles to the kids, which means that they have been presented with the puzzle. Mm -hmm. Then when the kids go to the carpet the next day, they will then observe which kids go for which puzzles or toys. Mm -hmm. And they will, they will write that down, which is considered sort of a level two, like great. They saw you presented, and then they were drawn to it enough to be able to go and play with it themselves. Mm-hmm. But here's where you get the A plus, is when the kid teaches another kid how to play or how to do that puzzle. Oh, yeah, that's a high-order skill. And that is considered when they've mastered mm-hmm. the puzzle. And I, to this day, I can see that in my son. To this day, I see that quality in my son that he feels like when he knows something, he wants to teach it mm-hmm. to his sisters, oftentimes also by annoying them like crazy. Yeah, but he gets excited about it and wants to share it. So I, I think to some degree that being able to teach people, bring them into the learning is a skill that demonstrates that someone actually has mastered that whatever craft that they've learned, right? It's like if there were a job for everyone, we wouldn't have to be selective. But But we are selective, and we're looking for people that have taken what was given to them, whatever resources were given to them, and they maximize those resources, call it education or training or code school. And so I use that as a a big signpost for me, because how a person does anything is how they do everything. If a person takes the smallest task and performs it to perfection, even though they don't have to, and goes beyond, even though they don't have to, that's telling me about the person. I don't care about the task anymore. I'm interested in what that revealed to me. That's why it's so important for me to look at those characteristics, those character traits, because I can't teach that. There's nothing I can do. They they either have it or they don't. That's what you're really bringing on board is that person. Do you think that work ethic can be taught? Yeah, work ethic can be taught, sure. I think anything can be taught. I think I can teach anything, but I don't know if it can be learned. Meaning, I think I could give you the steps, 
to develop work ethic, but I don't know if I can give you the will to do it or give you the appreciation for that as personal benefit rather than a, a punishment. So yeah, anything can be taught. I mean, I, every year I teach at a more simple level, looking for the simplest level I can that nobody can misunderstand this concept at this simple level. And I'm always surprised. <laughs> I can't get simple enough. <laughs> what are some of the simplest of truths that you find yourself regurgitating or constantly coming back to when you speak to people or when you speak to students? Oh, gosh. Or... You know, I have to be careful about that. One of my weaknesses that I like to get on a soapbox and I like to tell other people how to run their life. So I have to really pull myself back from that because uh, that's like an easy place for me. It's not a good place for me. I could deal with that if you gave me, maybe package it a little bit for me, put it in some context. Let me put it this way. I'm a CTO. I need to hire two or three software engineers ASAP. Mm -hmm. I have a pile of resumes. Yeah, get um, on the phone and start calling your friends. I went to Quidel. And Quidel hired me before I met you. There was this, the president. I met with the president. He was the last interview. I remember it was a Wednesday night, like from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. I was with him. So he brings me on board. And so the HR department had, I was looking for two technical people, a hardware technical person and an ERP technical person. So they said, well, here's the resumes, you know, and they gave me boxes of these things. And I was going to just hand them right back, but I didn't because I was there like two days. So I took them and I went through them and then I handed the whole box back to him. I said, there's nobody here that's qualified. And so, you know, if you get anybody, let me know. And I walked away and then I got on the phone and I started calling people. You were on board and you filled the first slot and then we needed to get the software guy. That software guy didn't exist anywhere on the planet. So I got on the phone and started calling around. I, my network started, I called from here to San Francisco, to Salt Lake City, to Chicago, to New York, to Atlanta, to Dallas. The guy at Dallas finally says, hey, I know a guy at Solardyne. I go, well, where's Solardyne? He says, in San Diego. So I go, what's his name? He gives me the name. I call Solardyne. I call into this employee. He's 12 minutes from me. So I networked around the United States to find the guy that was 12 minutes away from me. And now all I had to do is convince him to come and meet with me. And maybe we could move them out of Solardyne and into Quidel, and that's really what happened. That, that is it? amazing because I had no idea where you got him from. It's crazy, but the right candidate could have been in that box of resumes, right? Yeah. What I'm saying is, did you look at the box of resumes and say no one fulfills the technique, the minimum specification for what this role needs, or did you just not like what you were reading in the res? Were you just getting a sense of who people were from their resumes? No, what I wanted to see was forward thinking. What I got was chronological history. And so the challenge I had didn't exist anywhere there. It didn't exist in their resumes because nobody was going around the world implementing ERPs in two languages. And, you know, the best, most important part of the resume is the top third. And in the top third is the person's contact information. And basically, the whole resume is in line after that, which is, their value proposition. What do you bring into me? Say it in such a way that I want to read the bottom of that first page. If you can, I'm never going to get to the bottom of the page. So I was reading those, that top third, and I didn't read what I wanted to read. I didn't hear anybody articulate the kind of vision that we needed. And so we went one after another. So I have an idea for a resume 
website. Here's an idea I have, because I, I have the same, as someone who has to read resumes, I have the same thing. Like, I don't even know what I'm reading-ish. You said you did these things great. Proven skills, like seriously? Yeah, seriously. So I have an idea for a resume that, that is a symbol, a picture resume. So A, when I think of the candidate's resumes, I want to say, oh, it was that person with the circle and the two circles. Let me go back to that one because that one stands out to me. Because the one circle, they wrote this and in the other, like, how about if I appeal to the other side of my future employer's brain mm. to A, help them remember my resume and B, force the candidate to sum up their skills in a pattern <clears throat> or in a framework. I like it a lot. I do. But you know that imagery is much more effective in communication than words, than text. If, if I have a hundred resumes on my table and each person formulated their skills in the form of their spirit animal, and I went through those hundred, I bet you the five or six that I loved, I would be able to say, oh, it was the person with the hummingbird where they showed the beak as their like, human skills and flapping wings as their willingness to work mm -hmm. and hard work, you know? Mm -hmm. This old, tired format is, is so old. boring. It's not working. It doesn't deliver it. And the worst part is that qualified people, high potential people, produce bad resumes <laughs> under the current format because they're just chronological. Yeah, it's like you want me teaching to, them. Exactly. You want me to use a couple businessy sentences to sum up who I am at a certain company when I gave them my all? Right. How do you write that? Well, you got to use a lot of verbs and forget the nouns and forget the adjectives. For, oh for sure, forget the adjectives. You know what? After this podcast, I'm going to look up what all those words mean. <laughs> adjectives, <laughs> nouns. The adjectives. Pro proven is an adjective. Like, out. Out, yes. Yeah. What do I you know. feel about people who call themselves mentors? How old are they? <laughs> <laughs> So I want to ask you about decision-making because we had a lot of moments together where we had to talk about decision-making. And I think as a CTO, I'm often stuck with conversations in my C-suite where we all have a heated, awesome conversation about some business challenge, technical challenge, customer feature. But then we go into this state of limbo where it's like, well... Now, how do we make this decision? Well, how many times have I been in a meeting where I, someone has said, okay, well, how do we make this decision? Well, that's easy. Just leave it up to one person. If you're going to involve two people in making a decision, would this, can we call it something else like consensus building or democracy or something? But for me, decision making is a singular activity. If you're saying, I, I want the group to coalesce around something, ultimately, the group will come to a place in all cases where they uh, will reach an impasse. They're not going to be able to go forward because they're two opposing views and they both have equal merit in the eyes of the holders. So in that case, then it reverts back to one person, right? Maybe the project manager or the boss or whatever they're called. Then we're talking about decision-making, but decision-making is required by anybody with semi-significance in the organization. If I bring someone on board that's a knowledge value worker, like a software programmer, a knowledge value worker, they have to make decisions all through their whole job. They, it's like creating the language so the language is right. 
But decision-making affects the organization when it becomes organizational, right? The decision affects more than me. The decision's going to affect others around me. So it's transactional at that point. Every manager, every supervisor, every CTO is required to make decisions. And the problem is that we're all wired with these analytical brains. So we think that we're supposed to gather data and analyze it. Well, that's the worst thing you can do if you want to promote decision-making. And these experiments are 80 years old. So what I'm relaying to you is nothing new. Walter Schuhart back in the 20s discovered that if you reverse the order of analysis and try it, you make the decision a lot faster. You find out it was right or wrong, and you have so little stake in it that you can make a quick adjustment, even so far as to abandon the initiative altogether with no cost. And so if you wanted to train or teach a model, the Schuhart cycle is called the PDSA cycle. Plan, do, study it and then codify it or act or institutionalize it. Plan, do, not plan, analyze, do. Mm. Plan, do, then analyze it after you do the doing. That's what learning organizations are doing. Peter Senge wrote a book called The Fifth Discipline, right, in, in the 90s. And it was about the learning organization. And how do organizations execute so quickly? Because they don't do analysis. What they do is they have an objective, they get as much information about it as they can, and they go do it. They go try it out. And then they find out whether it was successful. Well, typically, it doesn't turn out successful. You make a modification, and you do it again and analyze it again. And then when you get to the point where it's, you want to then go from a pilot to broadly over the organization, then you standardize it, and then you just replicate it at that point. But I don't think it's intuitive. Like, I didn't come to this approach. You know, I read this approach and I tried this approach and forever I create objectives and then I try them out. I go do it. And then I find out the analysis from the doing. Now, the more you can repeat that, the more confidence you get in the process. But here's what I know. Everything that I need to know about a decision already exists within me. I just have to tap it. I have to give less dominance to my analytical side and more dominance to my intuitive side. Again, this is a tough switch over. People aren't comfortable in their intuitive side. They're secure in their analytical side. You know, they hide behind it. The intuitive side, they can't even explain. It's not even verbal. But I'm telling you, it's the most powerful tool we have to get us on the right track of the right decision. And then if it's wrong, it doesn't matter because you got nothing invested in it. When you put in an analysis cycle in before the decision, the longer you're in the analysis, the more you're invested in that darn initiative because you've got so much time in it, you can't back away. But think of when you reverse the order and you have a plan and you go run a pilot real fast, you can abandon the whole thing, you know, no cost. Because cost is time, not money. So that's how I would approach decision-making. So the idea that, you kind of intuitively know the answer to something within the first couple seconds, and now you build pros and cons lists to try and feel good about that decision. I find that pro and con lists are useless. But They're I, good but, for other people. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> oh, to, 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 to be able to articulate. to articulate. Yeah, you can't say, well, intuitively I came up with this. You've got to give them something more than that so they can follow it. you. So they yeah. can follow you. Actually, that's pretty helpful. Wow. Walter Schuhart, 1924. This is 100 years we've been fighting with how to make a decision. That's lean, right? That's the lean methodology. No, well, you know, I, I, no, it's a bolt-on. 
So, you know, anytime, if let's say uh, I want to teach a junior in, you know, I put together some kind of little training program and decision making is there. I'm, if I have lean practices and then I put decision making on top, I just bundle them all together. Kind of my mod- model in my head, my framework in my head is a collection of all kinds of things that I've just I've kept. And I pick and choose from all over the place. So I can craft an approach depending on the circumstance on what I'm trying to teach or train. That's beautiful, Casey. Really. You just you blew my mind there. The one thing, I was once managing a project with you, and I came to your office to complain that I couldn't get the people to do what I wanted. Mm-hmm. I remember. And I was very upset. And to some degree, I have that problem today when I work with people. And it's a fundamental problem I have with leadership. Being a good leader mm-hmm. is I still feel like I am in transactional land where I just want people to do what I tell them to do. And then inevitably when they don't, then I feel like, A, I don't trust them. B, I've got to do everything myself. I'm a control freak. How am I ever going to find anybody who can work with me? How do I fix that? You embrace it. You embrace your weakness. Stop trying to get rid of it and work towards it and do more of it. You'll find a solution come out the other end. Don't run from that because that weakness you identify on the other side of that is your strength. So there's a strength attached to that. So just go easy on yourself and just hold on to that. Allow yourself that. As opposed to feeling, because I feel a little bit of disappointment in myself, sure. and then that feels a little bit of shame. Sure. And I'm saying that's the thing to let go of. Forgive yourself for that. Accept yourself for being that person and stay that person. And, and that's the key, right? That's the key to the, this thing that's been gnawing at you, you know, the, the style, if you want to call it, leadership style. That happens to all of us. All of us have a part of what we don't do good enough in our own eyes. But really, I had a habit of always trying to avoid things that were difficult. I like the easy way, you know, and if there's any kind of, you know, suffering involved or anything like that, I'm, it's not for me. I'm, I'm, I'm too cool for that. I got to go in a different direction. And I found out that when I ran out of doing all the things I knew how to do really well, there was still 90% of the things I still left to do. I go, well, when, what are they and where are they? Oh, they're all the things I've been avoiding. <laughs> When I come across a circumstance that disappoints me or doesn't meet my expectation, and and I know there's something I don't like about it, I hold on to that. And I go, well, where is that going to lead me? What's There's something else there that my dismissal of this thing or rejection of this thing is not seeing. Mm. So the thought that I'm having now about that is I want to try, like, I'm an immature leader, so just get that out of your mind. Buck up. No. And, it, yeah. And but you're saying. That's still kind of harsh. That is harsh. That's very harsh. No, but so I'm saying, you're saying to rather sit back and say, okay, I'm feeling these things. On the other side of this is my strength and allow myself to go through the process as opposed to just going straight to that place of, well, I'm not like Simon Sinek wants me to be. Yeah. Or, you know, I wish you wouldn't have said that or wish you wouldn't have done that. None of that. And just know that you're not going to be able to please yourself. You're never going to satisfy yourself to how you believe you should perform. But you're not necessarily the only judge in your performance. How you affect others is probably going to be a more significant judge than your own judge. And people may perceive you a completely different way than maybe you know, you're seeing yourself. 
oftentimes the things that we reject, that means that we're disappointed, that's a form of rejection. It didn't meet our expectation, that's a form of rejection. The things that we reject, it's because we don't understand it. So I'm saying before you launch off and decide that the person isn't following your orders and you don't know why they're here anyway, stop that whole process and say, there's something I still need to understand here I'm not understanding. And just keep and open. The words are easy to say, but it's all about, you know, how do I incorporate that? How do I do that? And for me, the an I got an answer for that too. It's, is the <laughs> how do I do anything that's hard to do? You have to have awareness of it and know that it's coming. And that awareness is 90% of a behavioral change. I promise you. Knowing that it's coming. Knowing that it's Knowing coming. that my emotion is going to come. Yes. Or that the to, person's going to disappoint me. Right. You have to know it. You have to know it, that it's coming. Like before I'm ready to drive up into the driveway, coming home, I have to prepare myself what's going to happen when I walk through that door. So it's being a little ahead. Yeah, because uh, yeah, triggers yeah, will be you're coming. You're right. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say as a CTO, as a leader, I have an inappropriate blow up with my people out of my emotions you yell at them i mean yelling or you know we should do better next time or you know why did we say this to the client or mm -hmm. i thought we said we were mm -hmm. going to or, well, so that's a chew out session and are those legit are those ever warranted depends on your relationship with the person you're chewing out like you could chew me out all day long and i wouldn't like you any less yes you know but it just but they're just who, who they are. Who the audience is, right? Who they are, yeah. Whenever I picked a fight, I always picked a fight upwards. Upwards. I never fought people with a lower rank than me. I never fought my employees. I never, I would fight my colleagues every once in a while. But if I really wanted to pick a fight, I always picked upwards. Somebody had a high rank, higher rank, high, more power than me. And that's why I let it loose, you know? And then I would be escorted out to the parking lot. <laughs> Is that part of the mantra of being upfront with people? I think that there's a transparency. There's a culture of not being upfront with people, right? In the business land. I think in the United States has different business cultures, East Coast, uh, West Coast. Because I know in Germany, chewing someone out in front of people is completely acceptable. That was acceptable in the 1970s in the United States. I remember when I was a a manager and I had vice presidents working for me. These guys were full on immature, you know, anger addicts. They just say, well, that's just Ray. That's just Ray. But that's not acceptable anymore. We don't, business is one by the, by threads. Business is, is so critical that the modern organization does not have time at any level has no room for people that don't have highly, oh, that don't have it, yes. don't have highly developed emotional intelligence. So it's required at entry level people coming into the labor market. It's required at the middle level. And it's required at the highest level. And you know, emotional intelligence is hard. Mm. It requires a level of awareness about yourself that requires you to go deep into why you do and think certain things the way you do. That's not fun. So knowing that, you want to use that as a screening filter before you make a decision, bring someone onto your company. You want to screen their emotional intelligence. Now, if along the way you happen to want to check your own in at the bar, you can do that. But I'm saying, you know, from a leader's perspective, I'm going to bring people on board that are going to have highly developed emotional intelligence. Is there a way to test for that quickly for someone's EI? 
That'd be a good, good, that uh, would be another good, good exercise, idea. wouldn't it? Come up with a way of really destabilizing somebody <laughs> within the first 30 seconds yeah. of them. We don't teach that. We say, when you job applicant comes in, you know, make them feel comfortable, bring them coffee, you know, wash their feet while they're, you know, waiting for the interview. And it's all like get them down into their the real yes, comfort zone yes, and then extract yes. their deepest hidden secrets. No, you're not going to get that. Yeah. That's how it works. And so what we do is we engage in a conversation until some, you know, why'd you leave your last job? And in the conversation, this, and, and, and also that the supervisor was a jerk, you know, and it's like, oh, and then it's like, so tell me a little bit yeah, more about your supervisor. Yeah, yeah. In what ways was he a jerk? How did you respond to that? When was the last time that happened? All of a sudden, you're going down this rabbit hole of a conversation you never wanted to be in, and that's the deal ender to the whole interview. You see, and because the person came in with baggage to the interview. They had that resentment. And they also a sense of alienation, so they're isolated. And now here's somebody really friendly that's willing to listen to them for the first time, and blah. Everything comes out. Everything comes out. Are you saying one can get to that in the first couple minutes, or do you think this is what if happens? You, if you had an HR department, that's basically what you're paying them to do. It was just br cold, man. You know, It's like, what a waste. HR departments is to filter everybody out. Do you have an HR department here? <laughs> this, this, this goes nowhere. <laughs> well, that's amazing, Casey. I love it. The thing that when I said to you that I couldn't get anyone to do what I wanted them to do in mm. my project, the thing you said to me at the time, which may have changed, or you may have just told me that because I needed that, was you said to me, I can't expect anything from anybody that I'm not willing to do myself or haven't tried doing myself. That sounds like me. To this day, it has changed the way I view my employees, mm. my, as far as project planning goes, as far as expecting them to do stuff. Mm -hmm. Am I willing to step in and do it? I mean, I might not be technically skilled or competent to do it, but is my disposition such that I can and go and do that? Yeah, there's risk involved. I mean, that's the hardest part for people is to get past risk and uncertainty because nobody wants to end up with a bad job. Everybody at their core wants to deliver and they want to be recognized for being valuable. And then they, you know, don't do such a good job all the time at it. But when you have risk and uncertainty, then you can model that. You can model how to move past that if that's what you want, if that's the level of performance you want out of your people. I think it is. You know, because that means there's something significant going on. And, and why would you not want your people involved in what's significant in the business? How, how does that trace back to risk and uncertainty? What prevents people from not oh, doing it? Oh, you mean why are they not doing this because of risk and uncertainty? Yes. Huh. So then my role in leading them is to lower that. More clarification, less risk. Give them the permission to fail. Hmm. I never thought of it as they're not executing because of risk and uncertainty, but that makes sense. So permission to fail, because if they are in a perfectionistic environment, the risk is way too high for them to even start the project. If perfectionism exists in the culture, I'm saying you got to rethink the culture. It's a dead end, man. And you've never been a perfectionist, so there's no reason... To demand it from others, but we should have a we should have another hour on perfectionism. 
<laughs> I love it, Casey. Well, I'm definitely going to have you on for parts this two, is, three, and four. You know, I really, I really enjoy coming out here and talking with you because uh, we don't get together, get together like we used to. Yeah. And, uh, it's always, Maybe we should do it like this. Who knows? I got, I can build a studio in Mission Viejo. <laughs> Bring these guys up there. Hey, Casey. All right. Thanks, sir. man. Thanks. Casey. See you next time. Yeah. Part two, part three, part four in the future. Can we do parts two, three, and four? We, uh, why not? Okay. Hi, thank you for listening to the CTO Studio. If you don't mind, take a quick second and please rate and review the show. It helps us a lot. Go to thectostudio.com for more information on what we're doing at 7CTOs. We also have a video or two for you that could be a helpful resource for you as you're managing your company. So thank you for listening.